Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. I'm joined up in Wisconsin by the one, the only, William Annis. Hello. And over in New Jersey, I am joined by uh, Mike Lentine. Hello. Okay. Well, how are you guys doing? Doing just peachy. The weather here is still scaring me, but I'm doing peachy too. Yes. yes. I, finally, well, um, I finally finished reading Dan Everett's new book. How was it? And oh, I heard yeah. about this. You didn't like it. No, it's it's fine. It's so it's called Language a Cultural Tool. He's making an argument for a popular audience about why universal grammar is a ludicrous idea. But because most of his audience, his intended audience are not in fact linguists, he has to repeat basic linguistic things over and over again, mm. which is a little maddening if you know the material already. Um, I actually, oh, I, I think I, I still preferred his first book, which has the great title, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, um, sort of mixes talking about language with his experiences in the Amazon. It's a little more entertaining reading, whereas language, the cultural tool, is making a long, complicated argument. Mm. It's a good book, but mm. it's it's less um, thrilling reading, I suppose we could say. How long is it? It's not too long. Mm. I don't have it at hand. I can't tell you. You would recommend it? Oh, I would. I would. There's there's a lot of interesting Uh, stuff. As long as we're doing recommendations, I saw John Carter, and if you're going for the language, I'm going to say you might be a little disappointed because Barsoomian, there's a chunk of Barsoomian dialogue at the beginning, which is not sort of with sort of an average performance, and then very quickly they do something to change it to a. a translation convention. So there's not really much in there. Uh, that's yeah. the And it was not, but you know, a brilliant movie either. So yeah, it was it's okay. Not a great movie. It was, it, it was, was not okay. bad, but it's, it, I think that, um, the reason that, um, did badly at the box office is mostly marketing. Cause it's not really a bad movie. And it's the kind of movie that people would like to just sort of go and see and, turn their brain off but <laughs> you know it's not a great movie either no no it's it's really not i mean i like that it continues the current fad for face tattoos equals space aliens hmm. <laughs> so i'm, I'm well, always happy to see to... a new instance of that well it, it it is it's kind of hard to um uh it's 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 kind of hard to differentiate the red Martians from humans, other than they also had them have blue blood, which apparently, uh, which I don't think was in the book. I I it's been so long since I tried to read those. I don't know. They're um, the books are not. I think they actually improved on certain story points in the movie because the the in the book John Carter is very boring character. Anyway. Yeah. Let's top, stop talking about fiction and uh, and nonfiction recommendations, and let's start talking about questions. 
Do you think we're ready? So, what? (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Today's topic is is about questions, and mainly we want to talk about. So, when you're creating your language, you have to. There's a whole bunch of things that you have to deal with when you're dealing with how to structure questions. But I think the very most important thing is there are two types. There are polar questions, also called yes-no questions. Mm -hmm. And then there are question word questions. Mike, you said said content questions. I've heard WH word questions a lot. But basically, so to, to give you examples, so a polar question is a question where the answer is directly an affirmative or a negative. So it's, have you been to the senator's house versus uh, a WH word question is part of the sentence is replaced to ask what, ask about that part of the sentence. So uh, where have you been or who went to the senator's house? So, and languages usually have very, sometimes they'll have similar strategies for both, like, uh, English and Spanish and a lot of European languages just use a lot of um, changes in word order for both kinds, either fronting the verb for both or front the question word for question words and front the verb for polar questions. Uh, but they can have totally different ones. Like uh, in Chinese, the question word sentence, there's no change in the sentence, basically. You just stick the question word in there. But there's actually a couple different strategies for polar questions. And I'll save talking too much about that for when we talk in detail specifically about polar questions. But um, I don't know. William, do you have any general things about questions that you want to say? Uh, I don't think so. I think we should just dig into, you know, start with polar questions and then move on to the content questions. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's just leap in. All right. Well, polar questions. So, um, polar questions. Mike, you, you, you'll know this. <laughs> you, you, the polar questions are an interesting subject, aren't they? Because polar questions in themselves require maybe several different things because you have to figure out if you're going, how you're going to handle such things as leading questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can ask just a direct, uh, did you go to the center's house or you didn't go to the center's house, did you? Or something like that. Or, um, you, went, or you went to the center's house, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. true. Um, the expect- right. So there's multiple ways to indicate to your listener that you're expecting a particular kind of answer. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, English uses sort of, um, an extra clause in there. Um, there's different languages. Mike, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong on this. Huh. Okay. So, Lin Lausher taught us that, um, when you do the verbal verb, which mm-hmm. is, is one, one, there's two ways to form a polar question in Chinese. One is to say the verb, then bu, which is a negative particle, and then the verb again. And that is neutral. 
And she said that ma, when you use a ma question, which is you add a particle at the end, you are implying doubt. Is that right? Well, what I heard, I thought that when you do verb and then you negate the verb right after it, either with verb, boo, verb, or like yo meyo, or negate it right afterwards. Yeah. Um, I think that's a neutral. And I thought that the ma was kind of, was sometimes more of a formal kind of tone. Um, and it can be also to validate, like, um, yeah, I, I don't know. We we don't need to get into the complexities of of Chinese, but I think I, I think it's just kind of similar. Br- I'm sorry. Yeah, I wanted to bring up an ex- that is an example, partly because it shows that you can use di- totally different strategies for these two different things. Well, I think it's like in English where you said where one one of them is like, "Did you eat breakfast?" and the other one is, "You ate breakfast, right?" That right, I think, is similar mm-hmm. in in. Uh, in usage or in the what it's trying to denote, because um, yeah, while they're both yes be. or no questions, one of them is a little bit more validating of a point that you think is true or untrue. Well, actually, true. I don't. By the yeah. way, mm-hmm. I I do think the the uh, the positive the negative is my favorite way to form polar questions. That's that's one reason I I specifically wanted to point it out, but. <laughs> There's wow. a lot I mean, of I different have various things. things in conlangs that I like to do that I'm fond of, but I have to confess I don't have a favored strategy for polar questions. What? I, that, that's that's I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's just something I enjoy. Okay, so since huh? we're talking about this this polar questions, it's worth um, mentioning that slightly more than half the languages on the planet mark polar questions with a particle. Hmm. Yeah, most m- most often it is final, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like in the Chinese instance. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's initial. I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Esperanto, which it's mm-hmm. and it, Esperanto stole that idea from Polish. Borrowed, okay. borrowed, whatever. <laughs> um, and a non-trivial subset put that particle in my favorite position: Wackernagel position. Wackernagel. <laughs> Isn't that great? So 52 – so going with walls, 52 out of the 883 languages that they use for the polar question issue have a particle in second position to mark questions. Is that Wackernagel? That's Wackernagel. Yeah, it's – yeah, after the first word in the sentence. So it's the second Either the first word the or the first intonation unit, whatever, however you choose to measure it. The point is um, these question uh, – these polar question particles are quite – popular um it seems like in some areas i know there are both african languages and some you know thai kadai and and other sort of languages of um east asia southeast asia where you have both an initial and a final particle option with Mm -hmm. you might use both you might use one you might use the other so there are various possibilities there with you know this or that subtle bit of implication or formality I'm deciding between them. Mm. That's interesting. And there's also an issue, just like we had last time with negation, what's the scope? Questions can have scope too. Did you go to the store? Did you go to the store? Did you go to the store? All that sort of stuff. (laughs) Um, English, we use intonation. Um, Navajo has a clitic particle that gets glommed onto things that can be used to indicate this. Um, so you might have um, in a, a mix of things to 
you might have a special particle marking focus just for questions. There, mm. that's what I was trying to say. Uh huh. So, oh, okay, just to just just so that you have the scope right. Right. Exactly. Because if mm-hmm. you have a, if certain languages don't like to do what English does, like if you have a, a strongly tonal language, doing English style tricks to focus might not work so well. That's interesting. Um, yeah, obviously the English way of doing the, these things with um, with purely intonation can be, or purely through pros- prosodic means, can can be a little difficult to deal with, isn't it? Yeah. Um so I've noticed I've I've noticed someone on the conlang mailing list has taken to using a grave accent on the stressed syllable of words to mark his focus. Hmm. <laughs> in both questions Why and Why grave? Why a grave accent? Why not an acute? Because using stars on either end of the word or underlining or whatever <laughs> it seems too intrusive. I assume that's why he does it. Hmm. <laughs> I'm just thinking, oh, well. Anyway, um, so the, the point is, well, there's, I've already made my point, so we can move on. Yeah. Well, um, Mike, do you have any more points on ways to form polar questions? And, you know, we've mentioned the particle is the most common. Mm-hmm. I, I figure the, the, the verb not verb is probably not terribly common. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, there's also... The thing that so many European languages do, which is move the verb to the front, or in the case of English, move the auxiliary to the front, even if there's no auxiliary. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is kind of weird. <laughs> What's the dummy do? Mm-hmm. Uh, just on a whim, since we're still on this topic, I'll just mention re- regarding these particles. It's really common for the word or to get grammaticalized into a question marker. As a particle? That's curious. Yes, yes. As a vocronocular so, particle? Not a vocronocular? No, yes. vocronoggle. <laughs> <laughs> no, vocronoggle or, or pre-sentence or post-sentential. Pre, pre-sentential, I would guess most of the initial? time. Initial? Yeah, initial. <laughs> um, and oh, so, or you went to the senator's house could, could be used as a question? Yes, Okay, that's. I mean, that's and, and I've seen that in more than one language where the, those words appear to be related. That's a fun bit of grammatical, and it kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's an interesting little semantic shift, isn't it? It, it. I think it's you know kind of if it's not a, a, a cousin of it's some sort of relation to the verb not verb. Mm-hmm. You're presenting mm-hmm. options, and the that's presenting true. the presentation of options became. Um, you know, lost the sense of choice until finally it was just marking any question at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. And and since um, from the particles, I was just going to mention one last one. Navajo has a bewildering array of combinations for questions, one of which is just to add the word maybe to the end of the sentence. Which of those words means maybe? <laughs> that's it. That's uh, it. Oh, okay. That's it. Yeah, mm. so just move that to the end of the class. Right, so... There's another possibility for um, grammaticalizing existing vocabulary into ways to mark polar questions. Is the apostrophe a glottal stop, or is it a a, um, a uh, ejective marker? Ejective. Okay. How yeah, about the D, like... D A apostrophe? Then it's a glottal stop. This is oh. we I can I can explain Navajo orthography to you later. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll feature Navajo, but, uh, um, Mike, do you have any other in- things about how to form polar questions or can we move on to, uh, answering polar questions, which is well, one thing um, I want to talk about. One other thing that I mentioned on here, there, we, there's use of particle, um, we might go into this later, but maybe special conjugation on the verb might be able to show um, if it's a yes or no question or just the tone of voice. Like you can say, you went to school or you went to school. Um, and then uh, I just mm-hmm. added a note on the show notes. I heard that there's a difference between United States and Brit- and uh, England British uh, pronunciation on that in- intonation. And I, what I heard, and I don't know if, how true this is or if it's true across the board, but I heard that basically for polar questions in in, in American English, you typically rise at the end. Like, do you, or are you going to the store? But I heard that in um, on the other side of the pond, they say, are you going to the store? Or like that, that slight falling in it. I'm not sure if that's the way it is across the board for polar and if it's flipped also for WH, but um, that was just a little side note on using tone of voice where you could use that to mark polar questions or you could use it for WH questions. That's, well, that's true. We have a particular prosodic pattern in English mm-hmm. for questions, although it's sort of not exactly cut and dry. But when you apply uh, that particular prosody to uh, a statement, it can turn it, sort of turn it into a question. I don't know, William. Have you heard about this in other languages? Is it a common thing, or it, it is? I have of all of the things in linguistics, this is one of the most baffling to me that languages all over this planet have this strategy available to them as a way of marking a question. Doing something different at the end of an intonation unit, which distinguishes it from a statement from a question. Hmm. It is not always the same as the pattern obviously we use in the US or this UK difference. The, the reason I Whatever it is they're doing in the UK, it's not different enough from what we're doing in the US that I can't watch British TV. Mm-hmm. And True. To understand we, what's we, going can, on. You so. can understand it. Right. I, I know what's going on there. And th- there may be other things mm-hmm. I'm picking up on. But no, I, you know, a language like West Greenlandic, mm-hmm. questions may be marked simply by an intonation pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Languages, you know, of Vanuatu, you know, Vanuatu rather, you know, we, it happens all over. Mm-hmm. It, I, but it's it's scary to me how this one thing, which is so strange and you would expect to be so language specific, is so universal for the marking of questions. It does it does seem really odd that this this occurs all over. I I didn't realize it was. I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's something special about. But you know, it's really difficult to talk about prosody in the first place. So it's kind right. of hard to. To give people much advice on how to use this strategy in your conlang because it's so hard to to figure out, but uh, it is. I mean, I think that's one of the most characteristic consider. one of the most characteristic things about someone speaking English with an accent. Mm. You can always uh-huh. tell when a Spaniard is speaking a question because their question intonation is still obviously question, but it's definitely different. Uh huh. Yeah, it has a, a characteristic movement that is not like. A native speaker of English. Yeah. See. Anyway. So, um, just a quick question on um, we mentioned adding a particle, 
But is adding a, like a tag question or maybe just a phrase on the end considered a particle? I'm thinking especially, I think in Japanese they use deska on the end. Am I sure. correct on that? Sure, deska and, and, you know, French n'est-ce pas, although I don't know mm-hmm. how often that occurs outside of, you know, American French classes. Um, or like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, in English you can use yes or no um, at the end of a sentence, although it's sort of marked and, and uh, people associate it with certain kinds of people. Right. <laughs> um, but we can say put right at the end of a... That's true. You can put right store, at the right? end. Yeah. Um, mm. I think those are reasonably common as well. Maybe if you make a, a, a future English, you can you can uh, make right become a, a question particle. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but anyway, I think overall, the, the whole syntactic way that you form uh, these this particular type of question sort of depends on what you're going to do. And the prosody definitely is probably more for if you're doing stress accent languages than if you're doing a tonal language. Although they'll have some components. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think there is sort of a weird pattern in Chinese that, that, that can happen, but it's sort of, it's hard to distinguish because of the tones. But anyway, yeah, when I was we, doing I, research for this show, I found some papers with some extremely scary um, voice spectrograms of questions in Navajo. Ooh. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I'm, 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 we'll just leave it there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but another important thing is to consider specifically with polar questions is how do you answer them? Yes. So. Yes. In English, we have two different words to answer it. You have yes, which is an affirmative answer. It means that is true, and no, which means that is not true. Basically, mm-hmm. there's a lot of complications in that, but yeah. <laughs> there are other languages. I think that Japanese does this. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. But no, I no, think no. Ja- Japanese, answer... has yes and, Japanese has yes and no. Okay. I, I don't know how polite that, that, it is just to use a bearer, yes or no, but they have them. Um, but I had thought that they were agreeing with the speaker rather than saying the truth of the statement. Is that not oh, true? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There could, yes, absolutely. There could be differences there that I was never, I, I mean, I, I only had like yeah, a year I, and a half. I, people have said to me that in Japanese, when you say hi, it's you're agreeing with the statement, not saying anything about the truth of the statement. Okay. Um, but that might be that might be something that's scrambled in my head. I didn't I didn't bother to look it up, which I should have. Mm. But you can have that difference as to whether you are um, in English. We used to actually have four different words: yes, no, yay, and nay. And then yay and nay were that you were agreeing with somebody rather than saying anything about the truth of the statement. So, in other words. If we were still using this yes, no, yeah, and nay, I could say, did you go to the senator's house? You could say yes, or uh, or I could say, you didn't go to the senator's house, did you? And you could say yes, meaning I did go, or you could say yay, meaning no, I didn't go, uh, agreeing with what the speaker is leading you to say. Right, so this leads us to works. the big complexity how do you answer a negative question? The bane of every high school language learner's experience. 
Well, it's true. Like one of, one of the things that all, I always go back to when I when I'm thinking about this is um, it's not actually a negative, but it has similar problems. Is the question, "Do you mind?" You have to be very specific when you answer that in English because either yes or no would be giving the person permission to what they're for what they're asking to do do mm. by itself. Yeah, so but so you I have think, to be specific. Yeah, but sometimes that's not really a question. It's just the formality, like you know, like do you mind if I have some yeah, more food? If you say yes. It's, I mean, you could it's even more say of a politeness thing. <laughs> yeah, so not really asking a question. It illustrates how these things can be kind of weird. Like, um, like if you say, didn't you go to the senator's house? I think the default way would be yes would mean you that you did, right? Mm-hmm. In English, my dialect of English at least, yes. Yes. That could be different from language to language, and it it can be really confusing when you're in a conversation, and that's why we have ways of dealing with it. Now... Mike, I think you put in your notes that not all languages will even use this yes and no. Yeah, I was, um, let me just see where it was. I know in uh, Chinese is the one that I think I mentioned, where there aren't just one word for yes and one word for no. I might have mentioned it in um, the negation topic uh, notes. Um, In Chinese, if you say, you know, did you eat dinner? Then you'd say, I have or I haven't. There isn't really a yes. There's not just one word for that. Or if you say... um, if you say, did you go to the senator's house, you could say, you know, true or not true. You say, you know, you say go play. or didn't go. Although <laughs> Chinese actually does have dedicated yes and no, uh, uh, and boo, boo, but they don't use them as much. They usually repeat the verb uh, either positive or negative. Yeah, right? I, I- I don't think the uh is, is necessarily like a yes. I think that's more of a I listen. I'm listening. Like similar that's, to that's true. maybe a maybe a vocalization of nodding your head. Um, yeah, it's sort of it's sort of weird. But let's 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 get out of the 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 rabbit hole though. But um, out of the rabbit hole. But in general, you can actually do away with yes and no and have them oh. mm-hmm. repeat the utterance. Repeat the verb, repeat some part of your sentence. I don't know. William, do you have examples from other languages to say, like, because I know in Chinese all you have to do is repeat the verb, and then there's other 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 things you can do, but I don't know right. much about other languages that do this. No, it's, it's... The languages I know best all have yes and no available to them. Mm-hmm. And ancient Greek has, like, a 90 billion ways to agree or disagree with someone, with what someone has just said. <laughs> Well, I think or at that's least Plato kind of, did. I think that's sort of a general thing. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. Well, that's pragmatically, true. but yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's one thing to think about. Just in general, issues with yes and no. Does anybody have any other things to bring up about polar questions before we move on to WH? I don't think so. I don't. Nope. I think that's good. Okay. Well, why don't we move on then? So, WH questions, or content questions, or question word sent questions. Basically, what you do, and basically what any language, I think, does here is you replace the part of the sentence you're questioning with a proform, 
And in English, they that happens to be that four out of five of them start with WH, so we call them WH questions a lot. But uh, now is that big pro or little pro? <laughs> um, <laughs> big uh, pro. I'm not sure what you mean by big pro or little pro, but uh, I'm just okay. saying pro form. Um, because, like, it can be a, a pronoun, like mm-hmm. what and who are pronouns, but there's also, like, I would say where is, like, a pro adverb. But anyway. Sure, well, this takes us into theory. We don't need to. That, that, yeah, that gets a little, that gets a little confusing. But in general, you're just replacing a part of the sentence that you want to know. So, and there's different, there's different strategies. So in English, we're used to, you move the question word to the front of the sentence. Mm-hmm. Most of the time. Yeah. Um, other languages, again, this is like the third time we're mentioning Chinese, but they leave it in sight. And I think a lot of languages do leave it. <laughs> Yeah, they they live it leave it where it would be syntactically in the sentence. Um, so if we can t- I'll talk a little bit about typology, apparently VSO languages are more likely to have some sort of fronting behavior for interrogative words, whereas the other orders it can go either way. Well, that makes sense because that that for a VSO language that's like a natural focus position, isn't it? Yeah. So. And then we have two SVO languages, like English, which has WH movement, and Chinese, which does not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can... So it's more likely in some circumstances than others, but you can kind of pick and choose what you want to do. Yeah. Um, and then uh, with the movement... Um, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? No, go ahead. Um, I was just going to mention, <clears throat> speaking of WH movement, um, I know in the notes I mentioned that some natlangs have a limit on how many wh phrases can be moved like in english you could say you know what did you eat or what did you eat where or where did you eat what but you can't say where what did you eat but in russian you can move them all and i don't know about other slavic languages or if that's something based on case um but in english you can't Mm. move two wh questions like that you could say who ate what where when or when did who eat what or you can all sorts of different things but you can only move one you can't say where, what, when, who ate? Because <laughs> it just gets into well, chaos. Well, that's a, that's that's a really interesting. That may probably have to do with how non-configurational your language is, because because word order in uh, in Russian is pretty flexible, isn't it? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So probably you want to, to consider what parts of a question you can move. And if you, if you are doing the WH fronting and, you know, maybe where they go if you, if you end up with a big stack of them at the front of the sentence. Now, I have a question. Um, um I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, this is relating to if you have, if you have a verb that, um, or in your verb morphology where if you show both the subject and the object and you are questioning one of them, do you, is there like a null pro- pronoun that you might be able to use there or does it nope. disconnect? Okay. You you use the normal third person marking. Oh, okay. Hmm. I was just curious about that because if you do normally I guess if you have that WH movement, if you don't have your uh what the theta roles are or what's playing what role, then perhaps moving all of them would be very confusing because you just have a whole slew of WH things in the beginning and you wouldn't know what was the subject and what was the object and what was the indirect object. Um 
Honestly, I think these multiple WH questions in a single clause are pretty unnatural. Yeah, well, they they, they just they don't, don't happen occur. very often. Well, I think maybe two is somewhat common. I mean, two maybe might not be more common, but yeah, like what, like what did you eat where, or like who did you see when? I mean, sure, they're not. Maybe you'd see them in everyday conversation, but I wouldn't think they're necessarily. Un, like I don't think they're necessarily one in a, like once in a blue moon. Um. I would say that um, it might be something that you will get to if you're constructing a language to a full extent. But I would say that even though that that they're not necessarily unnatural, but they're very low frequency. I don't mm. think I I have I have asked a question like that in the past year. So mm. of course you know. That's mm-hmm. depending on how much you trust my own observations, but anyway, mm-hmm. right? It's just it's just I have a hard time thinking of the pragmatics pragmatics of asking three separate content issues in a single clause. Mm. It's often I mean, it's often very a very marked yeah, construction yeah, yeah. when you ask it. Yeah, yeah. In any case, in, in Nahuatl at least in classical Nahuatl at least, any wh question is just marked as a normal third person participant in the clause. I wonder if there are languages that have special person marking. I doubt that they that that if it exists it, that it would be very common because yeah, I can't recall. I, don't know, I see like I see question structures as largely a function of the the larger syntactic structure of the language anyway. So I don't think that it's going to to the people are going to invent uh, a, a different person marking paradigm for just for questions yeah mm-hmm. <clears throat> anyway anything else about wh questions no i think we touched on a lot <laughs> no, i no. think we've covered it yeah um, the, the uh, one thing i just wanted to mention is if you haven't listened to our <laughs> show on indefinites we have a lot to say about other ways negative uh, other ways question words can be used in mm-hmm. the language, I was just uh-huh. thinking about that actually. So it, it, certainly, we we don't need to give um, Mandarin examples here, but your mm. question word and your indefinites in some languages are very closely allied. Yeah, we've we've um, we've talked enough about Chinese right. for now. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, you I'll can just mention this, and you can go listen to our previous show if you want to look at some other ways yeah, these let words me can be used. See which show I know which show it is, but I don't know the show number, but. Uh, 28. All right. number 28. Okay. So you might want, yeah, people might want to take a look at that and see how you can do, how you can use question words in other ways or relate question words to other things. Mm -hmm. Um, William, you had some general notes, I think, involving how mood affects questions and also things like... Yeah. Right. So there seems to be a small number of languages on this planet that always use whatever their irrealis is in questions. All questions always are uncertain, therefore are marked irrealis. Hmm. I'm hmm. most used to seeing this in languages in, yes, of course, the Pacific coast of the United States, hmm. <laughs> where all things can be found. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that's that's... You know, true everywhere. Doesn't Japanese? I'm so confused. My Jap- Japanese is a special verb form for questions. Yes. No, it has a particle. Ka. Um, 
Um, There are some languages that have special verb moods just for questions. Just for questions. That's Um, interesting. And then I'm going to take a little detour here. So there, normally we've just been talking about questions in the very most broad sense. Mm -hmm. And in a normal question, when I'm speaking, I don't know something and I think someone I'm talking to does. But there are other kinds of questions. There are rhetorical questions where I know, and I think my audience does too. Um, There's a conjectural question when I don't know, and I don't think anyone knows. And the reason I mention conjectural questions is because in some languages of the Pacific Northwest again, but I think it occurs in other languages as well, using an evidential, an indirect evidential plus your normal question marking is how you mark these conjectural questions. Now, I have a question, um, <laughs> and this this is a very, very um, – this would be sort of advanced conlanging because it involves things like genre and style. But is it – do certain languages and even certain genres use more of these uh, rhetorical and conjectural questions than normal because – and uh, – People are going to be drunk if they do the the mention Chinese and drink game. But uh, I <laughs> seem to notice that Chinese discourse uses more rhetorical questions than English. That could be confirmation bias or something, or just like because I'm specifically cued to to look for their rhetorical structures. But I think that's the case. I think um, I've heard that in American Sign Language they use a lot of rhetorical questions also. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. That's actually. How does ASL mark a question? There's well, like fa- <laughs> like there's there's facial um, stuff, yes? Yeah, yes. Uh, uh raise mm-hmm. your eyebrows, right? That's yeah, one of them is raise your eyebrows or I think you can also do the uh verb not verb kind of thing in some instances. Uh I've I'd only took it for a little while uh, and I had I had the opportunity to work with someone who was um you know, deaf in a capital D sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um and it was, you know, I got to uh, exp- converse with her a little bit. But mainly it was a facial expression, um, and this is ASL again, not just you know signed English. Um, right. The facial expressions were a very strong marker for that. Sometimes if it was a A or B question, um, you'd show option one, option two, and then do the or sign. So mm-hmm. ah, there we go. We have or as a question marker, um, and I think in at least some dialects of ASL, there's also a lip pursing involved. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's there's. You raise your eyebrows and purse your lips. Yeah, I think. Bit. Yeah. Um, is so, expression. in terms of using rhetorical questions, yeah, I think that's definitely a stylistic thing. I would it would not surprise me at all to find that there are some cultures where they're almost never used. Hmm. Um, and the Chinese have had two and a half millennia to accumulate rhetorical strategies. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the West. So, I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise they're, me they're, if they're, that they're not. Their writing could be very uh, uh, difficult, even when you do understand the characters. So, right, right. <laughs> and then the last kind of question I just put in parentheses. I call it the Socratic, Socratic question, where I know, but I think the person I'm asking doesn't. Um, frankly, I know, think of this mostly as a know-it-all teenage boys question style. Hmm. It's it's where you're you it's, you're, it's the sort of thing where you ask the question and then immediately answer it, or right. you wait for a wrong answer and correct them. Right, yeah. right. right. Sort of, sort of. A, now, a gotcha. is, 
Is that what the teachers would ask a student? <laughs> well, well, yeah, that's what that's that's how Socratic method works, right? Right. Yes, you're questioning. You you have ideas that you need to you want to lead people to by a, a system of questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, the conjectural questions <clears throat> I thought was neat. You know, what on earth is that? Um, is an opportunity to use um, evidentials in questions where very often evidentials are not used in questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. That's, that is an interesting thing. So you, you say, just to recap, the, there's languages in the Pacific Northwest that use, an, you can use an indirect evidential to mark a conjectural question. Yes, indirect so evidential you, plus so you their say, normal question marker. Mm-hmm. So whatever you it say, is. what in, what is that indirect? And that means you don't know what it is and you don't think anybody else knows what it is. You just want to draw attention to it. You just want to, it's yes, like, you just want, you just want to mm-hmm. complain. Now, if it's it weren't, like, it's like what you say when you when you see a, a UFO or something. Sure. Now, if if it weren't a conjectural question, if it were a like just a regular, I'm ask, um, what was it called? The uh, the first one was a normal question. Ah, how easy! If it were just a normal question, would you use the direct evidential, or just is it uh, you could just drop the evidential altogether? Um, it depends on the language. Um, m- I typically, if I invent a language with evidentials, go the simple route and mm-hmm. only allow declarative statements to take evidentials. <laughs> okay, that's easy. Uh, um, yeah. If, yeah, if sometimes... you have a a reportative evidential, mm-hmm. the possibility is there to ask either a simple question, mm. which would have no marking, or ask if you've heard something. Oh, okay. The the conjectural use strikes me, William, as one of your uh, part of your principle. Grammar of, is born hungry, where basically people are just <laughs> co-opting the indirect evidential to do something else. Yep, absolutely. That's not that's not related to its core meaning. Right. It's not obviously um, a deranged use of the particle, but it just gets grabbed for use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So. What else can we talk about? I think we've covered questions pretty well, even going into these non, well, I don't want to say non-literal, but, you know, rhetorical and conjectural kinds of things. Uh, did anybody have anything else that they didn't say earlier that you know, they kind of want to cover, or can we move on? I think I've covered everything I wanted to say. Yeah, I think I think I covered everything, too. Except I'll remember yeah, something with that recording. But that's how oh yeah, of course. I'm, I'm, of course. I'm sure. I'm sure that somebody will make comments and stuff and give us examples from languages we've never heard of or something. Awesome. But uh, uh, Just definitely conlanger at gmail dot com or comment on the site. Um, then we're going to move on, and we are featuring a natlang today, and. Uh, unlike before, we're going to talk about a natlang that most of our uh, listeners have heard of and probably know a little bit about, and that la- la- language is Welsh. Hooray! Now, the sources we have that we're going to link to are for Early Welsh and Middle Welsh, but, uh, William, you explained that Modern Welsh is not, is, is kind of conservative, right? So... I, I think it is somewhat conservative, yeah. So I mean, some of, some of this information applies to modern Welsh as well, but it's, it's still sort of it's sort of archaic in some cases. Right, and the the only reason for that is that we have 
two good sources that are freely available for early Welsh grammar, whereas I could not find a good complete grammar of modern Welsh anywhere online. Although there may well be such a thing, I didn't find it. Yeah, mm-hmm. we wanted something we could link to and that all of us could read, because obviously yeah. William's the only one currently with uh, access to uh, a lot of A university internet stuff. connection to libraries. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, a university library, yeah. Um, so, let's talk about Welsh. Yes. Um, the, I was mentioning before the show, I don't help hate Welsh orthography. Of course, when we're talking about a Nat Lang, of course, we're not going to talk too much about orthography because it's naturally developed. But, you know, Welsh is an example of one where, I mean, you can, uh, Make sort of a more natural orthography without going too crazy, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, now, it uh, is a little bit crazy. Let's not get that wrong, but, you know. Uh, it it's is. a little bit crazy, <laughs> but, like, it doesn't bother me that W is, a, is used as a vowel. Some mm-hmm. people it might bother, but it's not a big deal to me. Anyway. It's not like there's a period or a consonant, gosh. <laughs> well, mm. Let's talk a little bit about phonology. I'm looking at... Uh, on page 10 of the, the book that, uh, an introduction to early Welsh, I saw this table of consonant mutations. And I noticed that not all of the consonants have all the mutations. Nope. And there's actually sort of a system for that. Like, um, so the, uh, the, the voiceless plosives have four different mutations, then the voiced ones only have three, and then on down. And it makes sense based on, well, of course, one of the mutations involves adding voicing. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I'm, I'm just want people to look at that because I think if you're going to do constant mutations, you might want to make sure, understand that if everything mutates, which appears to be the case in Welsh, mm-hmm then not everything will mutate in exactly the same ways. Partly because it's, you can't always, they, they, they physically can't be mutated in that way. And other ways it might just be the historical changes are a little bit different. So unlike, um, the Gaelic languages north, the, um, sibilant does not have a mutation. Okay, it doesn't. And the simple, Liquids do not either, although the voiceless ones do. Yeah, hmm. you can. They they can gain voicing basically. Effectively, <laughs> yeah. We can become, shlau can become lao or however you pronounce that. Yes, is that right? Yeah. Okay, and and shran can become ran, and mm-hmm. these are based on the 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 sound that comes before it, right? Correct. Um, for something that's at the beginning of the word. Um, sort of a Sunday t- style thing going on, or I call it, I call it the ghost of Sunday. <laughs> the ghost typically of Sunday. But, but typically, the sound that is causing mutation has also disappeared, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and mutation is the only trace left. Is that the case? I know. Um, I've heard that in. Well, this isn't. This is just. Uh, I think Irish. There's. Uh, if it's a like. Uh, I think genitive and a feminine word it, it uh, has lenition. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything that's just driven like that in Welsh. Do you know? Um, yeah, there are various interactions between uh, gender 
Um, Mm -hmm. The last traces of case marking that have subsequently disappeared, plurals before, different possessive pronouns, um, ad positions, all the whole thing, uh, various things that come, uh, the definite article, all of these things can potentially cause changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Welsh does have gender. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't, I didn't, I haven't read... So I'm kind of paging through this book <laughs> and uh, on I'm paging through a book online. That's interesting. So yes. I'm I mean, trying to figure out certain things. But um, is I mean, it- the reason the reason I we put Welsh on the list at all, of course, is this is the language that inspired Tolkien for Sindarin. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and it's one that inspires a lot of conlangers. Every once in a while I see on the ZBB or on the CBB somebody posting a, a phonology that has a big list of um, mutations, lineage mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm like, I look at that, I'm like Welsh or yeah. Celtic. <laughs> Celtic I've influence li- in general. I've used mutations um, in mine. <laughs> we, should, we should mention, I forgot to mention, so just in case, I'm sure most people know this, but Welsh is an Indo-European language in the Celtic family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people who uh, want to avoid Indo-Europeanness might want to stay away. But again, the Celtic languages have things like this lenition system that, uh, or or mutation system, whatever you want to call it, that are sort of uniquely Celtic in a way. Yeah. I think. Yeah, um, the, the Celtic languages are actually surprisingly strange mm-hmm. compared to mm-hmm. their relatives. I in love fact. It. Irish is so strange that for a while people weren't sure it was an Indo-European language. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Now is um, uh, oh yeah sorry go, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh no 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 I was just uh, I was gonna say is Basque an Indo-European? No. No. Okay. Definitely Basque not. Is not. <laughs> um, so some of the things let's just mention some of the things that we have in the Celtic languages and, and Welsh. Mm-hmm. Um, it's VSO. Mm-hmm. That's pretty weird. Mm-hmm. Its prepositions are conjugated. Huh. That's that's really weird. That, is that similar to like in Spanish, like conmigo, contigo? So how are they? How yes. are they conjugated? Let me see if I can. Where is I'm, that? Well, like I just said, like perhaps like in Spanish, like conmigo, consigo. You know, yes, contigo. except um, except except it applies to the entire system. Ooh. Yeah, it applies to all of them. There's basically suffixes that uh, point agree 15, with I see. person and number. Mm-hmm. So it's is a lot like that, but it's to all of your um it's to it applies to all of your prepositions. So I like that. That's that's interesting. So huh. you have Arnaf on me, Arnam on us. Yeah. Right. So yeah. pages thirty eight through forty of the book grammar have the various yeah. ad prepositions. And then the, this um this sort of lessons thing that we found on Middle Welsh has it has uh, a chapter, chapter 15. 15. It's yeah. all yeah. on prepositions. Uh, that's that's where you'll find a, a nice little chart here. Yeah, it's nice. And I'm sure there's right. a chart in a book, too. Right. And, and one of the things about these behaviors of the Celtic languages have led people to suspect that the um, vigorous trade in tin that was managed by the Phoenicians from the British Isles, that Mm -hmm. this is actually 
um, effects from the Semitic languages. Do they have that kind really? of aspect? Yeah, both of them do exactly. They're both being mm-hmm. so. They both conjugate their prepositions. Now, that to me sounds like a load of hooey, but it's mm-hmm. an argument that sometimes floated around and might give people interesting ideas for these historical yeah, instructions. I don't know. I, I, it seems it seems like a long way to go for uh, an area effect. It does. That's my main objection to it. Is I think if there were uh, like sound similarities, perhaps, but I don't know about just structural similarities. If that would jump like that, oh, they can sure absolutely. Yeah, and just the they, structure, they can jump. Yeah. They can jump, but I think that usually is more like an area effect and not. You're trading with these people who are coming from very far away. I don't think they're going well, to have an effect on everyday language much. Th- there may have been some colonies. Regardless, you and I both agree there's too few people for this effect. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. I mean, even if you normally avoid the uh, Indo-European feeling languages, the Celtic languages have a, a, quite an array of pretty divergent behaviors that are mm-hmm. worth looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, one thing I wanted to mention... Mm-hmm. that I thought was neat and that came to my attention is if you look in chapter 10 of the uh, online Middle Welsh, he mentions that the third person singular copula has five different forms. Ooh. Yes, this is, we, I love this. We have is, which is archaic and used in certain idioms. We have mm-hmm. you, which comes after a predicate and before the subject. So when you've inverted the word order, um, my, which comes when the subject comes before the subject and, and it can be used in questions. You have ois, which is used in negatives, questions of fact and conditions. So here we have a special irrealis copula. Okay. Huh. Used, used negatives, questions of fact and conditions. We were just oh. talking about how some languages mark, um, questions with a different mood? This sure seems to be that. Hmm, how interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last one, um, a seed is used. It's it's an existential. It means there is, effectively. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, so are all of these somehow derived from parts of the Indo-European co- copula, or were other verbs incorporated into this, or what? And My guess that's is... that's something that we don't know. Yeah, well, I'm sure someone knows. I don't. Yeah. Neither of these grammars go into a great deal of historical data, so, you know, I don't have the information that would let us know mm-hmm. how some mm-hmm. of these forms appeared. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Right. Um, um, so that's that. Some other things that I wanted to mention about the syntax that, that might be interesting for people to think about. Uh, normally... Adverbs, you know, follow deep in the clause. If you move an adverb or a thing that's like an adverb, like a prepositional phrase, out to the front of your sentence, you use a special particle after it. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So, so you don't, you know, the example here is, you know, he rises the next day. Um, the word you have the next day, tranoith. And then you have the particle E, and then the rest of the sentence. This is just a reduced kind of relative clause. It just happens to have a special particle. Different. I like this idea. So when they're moving adverbials, they have a particle to separate it. 
effectively, I mean, in it, because this is an Indo-European language, it's decided, oh, this is relativization, blah, blah, blah. Effectively, you have an adverbial topicalizing particle. I, I love how um, Chrome is telling me this page is in Welsh. Would you like to translate it? That's kind of the whole point. Well, that's good. That's good. Really? It's in Welsh? Go on. Who'd have thought? Um, it's, yeah. Um, um, and the same thing. If you need to topicalize or focus something, it gets shunted to the front of the sentence. And once again, another particle that comes before the verb gets used. In this case, it is definitely okay. still uh, a... This is the normal relative particle. And again, as... William, you have pointed out time and again, because this is a VSO language, it's kind of expected that it, it then it's understood, uh, understandable that focus gets shunted to the front. It happens a lot in a lot of VSO languages. Right. Um, passives in Welsh are pretty darn weird. It's it's effectively an impersonal. Right. It has no person. <laughs> It's not like uh, there's where's a, the where's the passive twenty seven twenty uh chapter twenty seven of the online version okay and they're pretty darn rare ooh oh they don't use it much well they have an easy way to to focus things and put things right exactly exactly um, um does, so those does... go ahead nothing <laughs> um w- one of the things that Tolkien borrowed. From Welsh, he sort of got an idea and ran with it like mad in Sindarin, Mm -hmm. is these umlauts in pluralization. Hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's crazy about... I always pronounce it Sindarin. Is it Sindarin? I have no idea. At any rate. Yeah. Um, Grey Welsh or the... uh, Not Welsh. Elvish. Right. um, (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely bonkers, the pluralization of that. Right, so the, but, the word for horse is march, and the word for horses is merch, right? So you have this in, whole... In uh, Welsh, country. we're saying. In Welsh, in Welsh, in Welsh. Yeah. Um, um, what's, uh, that's interesting. I'm seeing... But, uh, but it's important. But the point I wanted to make is that is available in Welsh, but it has a bunch of other ways to form plurals as well. Uh-huh. Some of which involve none of these vowel fronts, whereas Sindarin is... Pretty systematically. I mean, there's exceptions, of course, but it's pretty yeah, systematically. In the, book, there's, in the book, there's like several pages of ways to form the plural. Yep. It's really, uh, um, well, what's the it's word really for... complicated. There's like I'm two sorry. pages there. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just what saying, what was, um, oh, what was the Welsh word for horse? March. March? Oh, M-A-R-C-H, March. Where's, oh, okay. March. Huh. Okay. I thought that was the word for, well, I thought Merch was the word for daughter. That's why I was just um, yeah. confused, but, huh. Um, but anyways, I'm um, sorry. That so was it's that's um. Hmm. So one thing that we can say definitely is, in a lot of different cases, you see Welsh having multiple different strategies. Not just with the plurals, which have lots of different strategies, but there's a lot of places where you have multiple different strategies for the same thing, and that's something that we want to encourage and. Not just multiple different strategies for the same thing, but different strategies applied to different situations or to different words or something, which mm-hmm. is, you know, what the plurals do, is you have several different ways of forming plurals depending on the word that you mm-hmm. have to sort of memorize. 
Right. Yeah. Um, I know. Uh, uh, in terms of that, I know the, the Russian genitive plural. Uh, there are lots of different ways to form that, depending upon what the the lexical form of the word is. Yeah, that seems to be the case here, just in general. Um, I'm trying to find here. Does does Welsh have much in the way of cases at all? It doesn't seem like. Nope. I'm seeing masculine, so. feminine, neuter, gender, but nope. But case uh, is gone. <laughs> no case. All gone. No case at all. <laughs> I mean, there may be some adverbial-like words that preserve little wisps of it, but I don't think otherwise it's preserved. Yeah, I I, I haven't seen any. Is it shown in the pronouns? I mean, I know English has barely any case at all, and we say I and me and he and him. Right, so there are differences in the pronouns, there's, as always. Yeah, there's there's cases in the pronouns, but it's kind of anemic, isn't it? Um, and it's, interestingly, it's a little different in relative clauses, it looks like. Yep. Um so this sort of thing is very common. Mm-hmm. The verb system is pretty darn simple. You have um, non-past, which is present and future, imperfect, preterite, pluperfect, and then a present and an imperfect subjunctive, and some imperatives. Sounds like a sounds like a pretty generic European system, honestly. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, do they well? Um, do they have a lot of paraphrastic formations in terms there, of helping verbs? Uh, there are some, okay. um, and it's important, as in many of the Celtic languages, verbal nouns get used for multiple things, and they're pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Often used for for things where we would use subjunctives and different clause types, they use verbal nouns. Mm. Interesting. Such as, such as, such as the preposition in. I think this means in, plus a verbal noun to indicate purpose. I did this in order to go. Oh, um, okay. Right. Um, let me yeah. see. Yeah, it, it's not as developed in early Welsh as it is in, in later Welsh, and certainly not as much as it is in Irish, but the verbal noun, which again is something that you have to memorize how they're formed. Mm-hmm. Um, Ver- verbal noun, is that kind of, um, would that be like um, the gerund in English? Somewhat, yeah, basically. Okay. Um, okay, so, and the copula can go in different places than a normal verb can? Is this right? Probably. I've not memorized all the details of the magnificent Welsh copula. Well, I'm trying to look at it uh, in, on page 105, it was, it has a note about the position of the copula. And it looks like copula can can sort of follow S- um, no, SVO order rather than VSO order. Sure. I'm trying to sort of glance at it and figure it out, um, which makes sense in a way. Um, I don't know. Is there much more we can really say? Uh, unfor- uh, I'm, I'm sorry that I was a little bit unprepared for this, but it's... Uh, it is very interesting, and I may page through afterwards this book and find even more stuff that I feel like I, that I I will think I should have mentioned in the show. But <laughs> basically, we have some really good resources here. I want to say, uh, if you want to learn a little bit about Welsh and you're not intimately familiar with it, then uh, uh. Go to our show notes, follow the links, particularly this um, 
reading Middle Welsh thing, but there's also the the book is good too to just sort of page through. Yeah, and, and read the sections on on syntax. I mean, you can always learn interesting things about how any language, you know, invented or natural, how it decides to chop up the semantic space of prepositions, of conjunctions, huh. um, mm-hmm. all all of these little things, idioms. Um, because it has so little morphology, Welsh is kind of a syntax-heavy language, but it, it's still a very flexible syntax, and the way it copes with that is pretty interesting. One nice thing about this um, this link or this uh, page is it mentions in the preface how to use this book, and it kind of walks you along with a quick overview of what might be found where. Um, like if you're mm-hmm. using this book with a teacher, you can pass over some of certain sections, or if you're... Um, if you're put off by the long list of first words in chapter four, it says they're not meant for immediate learning. And it just kind of gives you a um, almost like a little syllabus kind of blurb. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's a teaching document here. Um, uh, there's appendices too, which show you various different things. Ooh, nice vocabulary. Um, so list. If, if you want to look at giant, um, giant charts of stuff and figure out stuff from that. It's an interesting way to do. Um, I don't know. I think we can sort of move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to go to feedback or? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. No last notes here. I don't think okay. so. Okay. Um, then I'm going to do something special here. We've gotten a new few new reviews on iTunes. So, uh, we have one that's, uh, from MBR Sart, um, says, a, titled A Wealth of Knowledge. It's a, it's a five star one. It says, I've learned more about language from the Conlangry podcast than in all my years of schooling. These guys have turned me on to tons of interesting languages and linguistic features. I listen to them at work to pass the time, and I can go for hours soaking in all the information. Have I read that one before? I don't know. No, because I, I'm I I don't think I want to be responsible for someone slacking off at work. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, M. Henke says about time. He says I've been conlanging for seven years now, and I always get weird looks when people ask me why I do it. It's about time there's a podcast for people who just get it. Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. Hmm. And then we also got a review that's four stars from literal minded and i'm not going to read that out but it's basically copy pasted from his blog entry where he linked to us and i'm going i'll uh put a link to that in the show notes he has a great he has a great blog yeah if you're not if you if you're interested in linguistics his blog is i mean he tends to be a little bit more semantics focused or at least he was the last time i was reading it i had i've only recently re-added him to my a lot of what he's doing is um, talking about different usages and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So he's um, he, he's one of those guys where, well, it's sort of a general linguistics blog, but he's also one of the guys who uh, will, like, defend various peeves and stuff and actually teach you some linguistics in the process. But, and uh, what William, you say he used to... And I remember he, him doing this. I don't think he's done it in a while. He used to say, talk about things that his son would say. Yeah, his sons, <laughs> especially early in their development of language, it was always interesting. He'd have fun things to say about 
phrases they used. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, that's, that, it's a good blog. But anyway, I, I was, I was glad to see that we're getting more, uh, a couple, the, us get a couple more reviews and we've gotten more ratings too. Um, I think we've, we may have some new listeners. So if you, you, you are listening to us fresh, then, uh, welcome aboard. Welcome, welcome to the fold. Yes. <laughs> Imagine doing your evil finger pyramid there. In that <laughs> case, um, and next episode we'll probably get some emails. But other than that, I think we can wrap up the show. And, uh, Mike, this time, do you have any final words of wisdom? Um, basically just, uh, you know, le- learn as much as you can about how other languages do things. If you find something interesting, think about a way you can maybe twist it funny or even just use it and change a little bit. And, uh, you know, every language is a wealth of inspiration waiting to be discovered. Okay. And William? <laughs> every language needs a word for banjo. <laughs> Even if it doesn't exist in the in the world it's attached to? Yes. What's the not V word for banjo? Yeah, I, I have to pester <laughs> Paul about that. I'm mentioning this I'm, that because... I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just mentioning this now because sort of the grand old man of banjo, uh, Earl Scruggs, just died this week, so... Oh. Okay. Everybody make a word for banjo. It will make me in happy. In honor of Earl Scruggs, then. Now, does it have to be a, a native word, or can it be like a, a loan word? Well, that's boring. It needs to be. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's the homework. (laughs) I don't know. Loans can be can be funny if your phonology is really weird, really different from English, isn't it? Couldn't it? And now I wonder what Hawaiian for banjo is. I'm looking up with the Chinese. Uh, I don't know, but when I figured out that Meli Kaliki Maka was actually the way that they borrowed uh, the English Merry Christmas, I was like, what in the world is going on? The Chinese I see for it is uh, Ban Zhuo Qin. Or Ban Zhuo Qin. Ban Zhuo Qin. Yeah, Ban Zhuo Qin. That makes sense. Anyway, uh, before we digress any further, I'm going <laughs> to say Happy Conlanging. <laughs> You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured Conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. Just, I just now, where did the word banjo come from? You know, that is a surprisingly good question. <laughs> we don't know. We People as have, you or we no, as an no, everyone? Everyone. People have ideas, but none of them are really solid.
Okay. These things can be sometimes weird. That's excellent English syntax, William. Well, I know that there, like, I've I've heard that Shakespeare's been uh, uh, translated into Klingon. It has, but it's sort of a very interpretive translation. Like, um, if you look at in the Land of Invented Languages, at the beginning of the Klingon chapter, let me see <laughs> if I can get the book and actually read to you the way that they translated uh, the line. Um, is it better to face the slings and arrows of what is it? Um, uh, a great uh, fortune, outrageous fortune. Yeah. Of outrageous fortune, they translate that as: it is it is it honorable when inside the mind one endures the torpedoes and phasers of aggressive fate? George, Two. do you speak Klingon? No. Okay. <laughs> Freaking circumflex over H. What was that person <laughs> oh, smoking? <man. laughs> what do you call them? Hobo langs, gogo langs. Bogolang. 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 That sounds like a great category. It's and and a very special uh, politeness form for asking for change. <laughs> <laughs>